the first five chapters of 1 Corinthians are some of the most uh, life-changing truths for me personally, and those are the chapters that I'm going to be dealing with for the next time. So as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the first eight verses, uh, Cindy, in the absence of Steve, is going to read. Would you do that for us? All right, thank you. The last two verses there, verses 7 and 8, are phenomenal verses to me. I want to reread them with emphasis for just a moment. But we speak the wisdom of God, which is actually a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world to our glory. And if the princes of this world had understood that hidden mystery of God, they would certainly have thought twice about ever crucifying him. They would not have dreamed of doing it had they known what was going to happen because of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was to our glory that it was done. Now, we're going to look at these verses in a moment, uh, and you're going to wonder, unless I tell you at the beginning, whether I'd forgotten them or not, because we're not going to return to them until the last 10 minutes of this class hour. But the other 30 minutes before that last 10 minutes, actually not quite that long, but the first 25 or 30 minutes will be dealing with what I'm going to be calling tidbits. Now, do you know what a tidbit is? Yeah, a tidbit, by definition, is a choice morsel of food. What you want to think about when you think of tidbits is finger foods. You know, they pass those little trays and you pick up this tidbit and that tidbit and all the other. Well, tidbits in terms of teaching a Bible class like this one uh, is tidbits uh, meaning choice morsels of information. And that's what we're going to be looking at. I used to call it chasing rabbits. You ever heard a preacher who was doing a message and doing a Bible study and he'd go a different direction or have a thought and would enlarge on that thought and we would call it chasing rabbits. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I've got to confess to you, I've done a lot of rabbit chasing in my, in my 50 years of teaching the scripture. Uh, I didn't mind it so much if they were fat when I caught them. And so what I'm going to do for the first 20 or so minutes this morning is I'm going to chase some rabbits, and I hope they'll be fat when we catch them. Uh, the other metaphor is I'm going to be uh, giving you some tidbits of information, and I hope it's worthwhile, but they're all leading up to an understanding of what was meant in these first verses, the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, the first tidbit, tidbit number one, and on your notes, you can write this in if you want. Uh, is there any doctrine that might be a deal breaker? Is there any doctrine that might be a deal breaker? Now, for you to understand what that statement means, I'm going to have to review you remember a couple of weeks ago, or the first time that I taught, uh, we dealt with the introduction to 1 Corinthians. 
And in the introduction, we saw that we are graced people. It's already been done in the Lord Jesus. We are gifted people. He's given us every imaginable gift that's necessary for the living of a Christian life, and we're guaranteed people. We're going to stand one day blameless before the Lord. That was the introduction that Paul and his brother Sosthenes intended for us to understand when he wrote 1 Corinthians. Now, the reason he did that reminded us that we're graced and we're gifted and we're guaranteed is because he wanted to know how rich we are in Christ Jesus. Now, the reason he wanted the Corinthians to know that is because they were doing a terrible job of living the Christian life. He's going to have to try to help them. He's going to have to try to straighten up some of the messes that they've made. We were talking about messes that we make, and the Lord is spending our life cleaning up a lot of the messes that we continue to make. And that's what Paul is doing with 1 Corinthians. He's going to deal with all kinds of issues, immorality, drunkenness at the Lord's table, a bunch of other stuff. But before he does, in the introduction, he reminds them of how wealthy spiritually every believer is in Christ Jesus. Graced, gifted, and guaranteed because of the Holy Spirit coming to live in us as a down payment on all that's going to come eventually. And then last time we looked at what Paul was talking about in terms of unity. In other words, what we're to do is we read the text in the first part of chapter, in the second part of chapter one, and the text said, I want you to think the same thing. I want all you people in the Corinthian church to have the same opinion about this. Now that's impossible. You can't have a, I don't know of any church I've ever pastored who had the same opinion about most issues. Well, was it, we looked and we decided he wasn't talking about favorite foods like Mary's that I mentioned. We won't mention it again. It's too profane to say in church, you know, chicken livers and onions. Who wants to say words like that? But he wasn't talking about favorite foods. He wasn't even talking about fashionable styles like wearing ties or not wearing ties. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about one thing only, and that is the ground of our unity. And you know what that is? the person of the Lord Jesus. They were arguing about who'd been the best pastor in the Corinthian church. They were all at each other's throat because they didn't agree about that. Some thought Paul had been the best pastor. Others thought Peter had. Some of them thought Apollos had. And Paul is simply reminding them, who does it matter who your pastor is? Each one of them is a gift to you from God. And what you're to do is receive each one as a special gift when they're with you and all of the things God wants to do, he'll do through that person who leads the fellowship. It doesn't matter who the pastor is. In fact, he says, you know, I only baptized a few of you. I can't, I named a few and he said, I can't remember anybody else. So I baptized because the Lord didn't send me to baptize, didn't send me to make a great name as a pastor. He sent me to do one thing only, and that one thing is the thing that is our ground of fellowship, and that's what? Who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf, and that's the message, we call it the gospel, that's the message that binds us together. 
So we may like different foods and we may wear different fashions and we may all have different ideas about some of the minor doctrinal issues and so on. But about that one thing, the person of the Lord Jesus, we agree. He's the unique son of God who gave himself on the cross. And that's the thing that we unite around. Now, what I mean by this, is there a doctrine that's a deal breaker, is this. If that's true, that our fellowship is around the person of the Lord Jesus, then is it ever right or uh, a good thing to change a church because of something you might disagree about uh, in an area of a minor doctrine? Or do we just forget all those doctrinal truths and they never matter? Well... I'm of the opinion personally that there could be an occasion where a minor doctrine becomes a thing of conscience. Where, in other words, you've got to be true to your conscience and you even want to be with a fellowship that's true to their conscience so you might change from one church to another. But it isn't because you're not in unity with them. You never destroy unity even if there is a doctrine that becomes a deal breaker. Now, I'm going to give you just a word of personal testimony. It's not important at all, except it's just personal with Mary and me. Three years ago, we came to this fellowship out of my traditional background, our traditional background, and one of the reasons, I'm not saying it's number one, I'm not saying it's even the top of the list, but one of the reasons was there was a doctrine that has become a deal breaker for us. You know what that is? Women preaching. You see, we're of the conviction, deep conviction, that in the new covenant, there is no uh, gender bias in terms of teaching or preaching the word of God. That God never sets pastors or teachers apart because of their male or female identity. In Christ, there is neither bond nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Greek. In Christ, we are one. Then he gifts us individually so that in that body that we're a part of, we minister and we operate and we function and other people are edified and other people are helped in their development of their Christian life. But he never does that by gender, male or female. Now, I used to think otherwise, okay? But I've come to a place where in my understanding of the text of the scripture, Mary and I have decided we need to be with a group of people who agree with that particular truth or we're not comfortable. We're not where God wants us to be. When I say comfortable, I mean comfortable in spiritual reality. We're not where we believe God wants us to be. So we've come to this fellowship a lot of reasons. That's not even the number one. But I have to be honest with you, that has become a little bit of a deal breaker for us. But here's the point I want to make. When we left, and by the way, we were in one fellowship after I finished my pastoring, 40 years of pastoring. We were then 10 years in a local church in Norman. Then we were 11 years at another local church in the area. 
And now we're in our third year of being in this local church. And each time, we believe the Lord led us to be a part of a body. This time, that thing about uh, no gender bias in giftedness and ministering in the Word of God became a deal breaker for us. But here's what we determined. We would never part from a fellowship over that kind of issue, even if it's doctrinal. We left with great relationships, loving those people as always. They still are part of our family. We still communicate with them. We're still rejoicing in their uh, wonderful things and weeping when they're in painful things. And it's amazing how broad our family becomes when we only move fellowships without destroying unity. Does, does that make sense? So you can actually be in unity with another church and even have a little bit of a disagreement about some of these minor issues, even some of them doctrinally, like whether women should teach the word of God or not. This is kind of a deal breaker for us, and that's the first tidbit that I wanted us to chew on, okay? Now, tidbit number two is, uh, have you ever noticed that in the Bible, in the New Testament, there are no seminars, workshops, retreats, or Bible conferences. Have you ever noticed that? When I finished 40 years of pastoring in 1996, I was pastor of Trinity Baptist Church in Norman, Oklahoma, great church, wonderful group of people. We had a fun five years with them there, and uh, it was my final pastorate. I had eight over a 40-year period. Um, but I taught through the book of Acts on Wednesday night for the year, our last year of ministry there. Every Wednesday night in the book of Acts. And I discovered something about the book of Acts. Those people in the church of the New Testament, as you find in the book of Acts itself, were so simple. I mean, they really were simple. They seemed to relate the Lord Jesus to everything in life. In other words, some way or other, the person of the Lord Jesus was so real that his reality touched every facet of their living. They didn't get cold and uh, spiritually and all that kind of thing and have to have a you know, revival in order to revive people. Now, there came revival, but it was the divine providence of God when he uniquely moved and so on. But my point is simply this. They seem to know something about the Lord Jesus that either we don't know in our present day or we have forgotten. And you know what I think that is? I think that they... And by the way, I've had, asked, I've had this ask of me, Brother Paul, what's happened with the power of the church that they had in the New Testament? That New Testament church was powerful. Now, they had their problems. First Corinthians, one of the testimonies of that. But they were so powerful. I mean, the Holy Spirit was so real in them. And do you know what my answer to that question is? What happened to the power of the New Testament church? I believe we've lost the power in the corresponding way we've lost the simplicity of who Jesus Christ really is and how he affects and touches 
every area of our life. If I were to put it in simple language, I would say this. The New Testament church that I studied in Acts, my last study through Acts, the New Testament church there that I saw really did see Jesus Christ as the source of everything that made life worth living. I mean, he really was what they looked to as the source for life. Now, you know what the source is. The source is that in which you live that gives you what's necessary for life. If you plant a flower, the source of life is the sun, the soil, and the rain. Okay? Well, the thing that makes life worth living for us as believers is the person of the Lord Jesus himself. There can be the sun or there can be the cloudy day. There can be the wonderful uh, weather or there can be the rainstorms. There can be all kinds of situations in life. But what makes life worth living is not when things go right, but it's the person of the Lord Jesus. He's the source of it all. Now, you know what happens to us when we look to Jesus as the source? Something happens inside us that is absolutely incredible. Have you ever known anyone who really believes, at least they seem to live like, their car is the source of what makes their life worth living? And I mean, you know it because they spend a ton of money on this car. And I mean, it's what makes life, life. You can always spot them when you go to Walmart because it takes two or three parking spots to park it. So no one will open their door and dent it. And then you watch them if they come out and somebody's opened the door and there's a dent, they lose, if this person's a Christian, they lose their love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness. In this anger, and this turmoil because somebody dented my car. Now, we know that what you drive as an automobile is not what makes life worth living. Are we right? Yes, but have you ever known anybody that makes their home that? Man, they've built it. I mean, it, it's better than anybody else's in the community. I'm five points better because look at the house I was able to build. And if you ever visit them, you better wipe your feet because if you get mud on the carpet, they lose love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness. Why? Because their house is the source of what makes life worth living. Now, nobody in this room worries about that. We can drive whatever car, we can build whatever size house because that's not our source, right? That wasn't the source of these folks either. That's why they could be driven from their home. That's why they could even lose their possessions because they didn't look to those things as what made life worth living. Have you ever known someone who thinks uh, their kids are what makes life worth living? And so they dote on them, they provide for them, they clean up every mess they make, and the reason is because, and by the way, they keep all the messes secret because you never want to make a public a secret mess because of the shame involved because the kids are the source of what makes me feel like I'm really the person I am able to be. And then one of those kids gets arrested for selling drugs or 
something worse maybe. And that person, unfortunately, as a parent, loses love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness. No one's saying it doesn't have hurt. But what I'm saying is, you see how it can move from car to something serious. But even that is not the source of what makes life worth living. Our children, as much as we love them and invest ourselves in them, and they're a treasure from heaven, we are to train them to be independent of us and dependent on him and release them into his care. Why? Because they're not the ones that make life worth living for any parent. If we understand who the Lord Jesus really is, he's the source of our life. I've known ministries, men in ministry, who thought their ministry was the source of their life. So the church going wonderful. Man, they feel good about themselves. Life worth living. But all at once, somebody gets mad at them. Somebody doesn't speak to them at the back door. Somebody disagrees with their sermon, and they're crushed, and they're broken, and life just isn't worth going on. Do you understand? Ministry's wonderful. I've spent... 40 years pastoring, 25 years traveling in conferences. But if I got throat cancer tomorrow and could never speak another word, I've got to learn and understand that being able to speak and talk and preach and teach the word of God is not what makes life worth living. It isn't car or home or kids or ministry or job. It isn't. It's who the Lord Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf. And that's the only reality that can enable us to live life regardless of the circumstances. Now that's tidbit number two. Now tidbit number three. Have you ever noticed that sometimes older Christians who know more doctrine and had more Bible studies than you can shake a stick at, have attended church more often, can tend to get cranky and mean and ornery. Have you ever noticed that? Now, there's no, there are none of those folks in this room. But I've been in a lot of churches where there are a lot of those folks. I mean, the longer they've been a Christian, it just seems the crankier they get. On the other hand, have you ever noticed that some people, guys, gals, brand new Christians, I mean, they think the epistles are the wives of the apostles. Or, you know, they think uh, the Bible teaches God helps those who help themselves. You do know, don't you, that the Bible doesn't teach that? God doesn't help those who help themselves. Those who help themselves wind up in jail. God helps those who realize they need help and they turn to him and he provides it, right? Amen. But these young Christians, man, they're so full of zip and vinegar and I mean, they're in love with Jesus and so on. So my question is, what in the world happens to some of us as we get older? That doesn't have to be that way. I remember Bob and Inez Bozart, Mary remembers them well. They were in their 80s when I was their pastor back in the uh, 
late 70s there with the Lord now, have been many years. One Sunday morning, I drove up on the parking lot, and Bob and I and Nez, uh, were walking in front of me, and, and uh, I was walking behind them, and I was going to greet them after I got inside. I saw uh, Bob put Inez, his arm around Inez, and she was crying, and he hugged her to himself, and I, what's wrong here? I ran up and said, Bob, Inez, what's wrong? And both of them looked at me and said, oh, nothing, Brother Paul. Everything is wonderful. He said, uh, sweetheart and I, that's what he always called her, sweetheart. Sweetheart and I were just talking, driving up to church this morning, how wonderful these days are, how much God has done for us, how much we're learning and growing. He said, do you know, I'm in evangelism explosion, and I saw my first person come to the Lord the other day. He said, these are the best days I've ever experienced. I hugged Bob, Bob and I, and there's both, both of them white-headed, you know, aged, my age, you know. I was far from it back in those days. But I walked away having this thought to myself, Lord, when I get to be 80, now I'm there, help me to be like Bob and Inez Bozart. More excited about life now than I've ever been, learning more about the Lord Jesus than I've ever known, more excited about studying Scripture than I've ever been, Instead of like so many who get cold and cranky and mean-spirited, and, but they know so much Bible, what, what, what makes the difference? Now, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know all that makes the difference, but I do know this. I do know that they've made a mistake with the verse of Scripture that says, I have come, you shall know the truth, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Sometimes in my history, my Baptist background, I've read that verse meaning, you shall know the truth. That's the Word of God. The doctrines of the Word of God. And boy, the more you know doctrines, the more you know truth, you know. Uh, the truth will set you free. But freedom didn't seem to come. In fact, so many got bound up in their shoulds and should nots and oughts and ought nots, and they got bound up in you can't do that, you should do this, and so on. But you see, that's a misinterpretation of that verse. You shall know the truth. Now, the word truth is with a capital T in the original, has the word the before it. It's a reference to a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, the Word of God is the truth about the one who is himself the truth. And when that John passage is speaking, it said, you shall know the truth. And that word know is a Greek word which means to intimately be acquainted with. It's kind of like in the book of Genesis when Adam, in the Hebrew it says the same thing, and Adam knew his wife and she conceived. Well, it doesn't mean he knew her name. It means he knew her in a more intimate way. That's exactly what it means in the Gospel of John. You shall know in an intimate fashion the one who is himself truth, the Lord Jesus, and that one will set you free. 
Verse 36, you shall know, John 5, 36, I think it is. You shall know the truth, the truth shall set you free. In verse 38, it says, Jesus is that truth. He is the one who set you free. You see, if the older we get, the more we think we know about the Bible and Bible doctrine, the better off we are, we're going to make a mistake. Because everything we study in Scripture needs to point us to the one who is himself, the truth of it all. I've been teaching the feast days on Wednesday night. It's over now, but uh, we looked at the feast of Passover, the feast of uh, unleavened bread, the feast of first fruits, the feast of Pentecost, the feast of trumpets, the feast of atonement, the feast of the tabernacle. And each one of those feast days in the Old Testament pointed to the one who was himself the object of that feast. And the more we get intimately acquainted with the reality of who Christ is, that's the way we come to a place where we're really free. Now, you know what freedom is in a Christian's life. Freedom in the Christian's life is not the right to do what you want. Freedom in the Christian life is the power to be what we ought. It's the difference between, as I heard one time, a railroad uh, train going down a track, adhering to the track, or tumbling down the hillside, which is the freest for the train. The train's not really free going down a hillside with no tracks. It's chaos. The train is really free adhering to the tracks and performing the purpose of the train. And that's what we are as human beings, knowing the Lord Jesus. We're to see him as the source of what makes life worth living. And the older we get, the longer we live, the more excited we begin in knowing who Jesus is, the more excited we become in understanding what he's accomplished, and the closer to home we get all the time. I think that was the secret of those people in the book of Acts. Now, there's one final uh, word that I want to use as a tidbit, and then I'll close with tying it together with, John, with 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Tidbit number four is simply this. When Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, he did not use the word life. Well, he did use the word life, but it's a different one. See, there are two words in the Greek language for life. One is bios. We get biology from it the study of biogenetics and so on, the study of biology. Ology means the study of. Theology, the study of God. Theos is God. Okay? That's not, that's the word that he, that's the word that the Greek language uses for life, bios. That's not what Jesus said. He used a different word. It's the word zoe. And the Greek word zoe has to do with an internal, internal ability to be given the power and the wherewithal to go on 
regardless of extenuating circumstances. In other words, Jesus has come that we might have the internal ability to live life to its fullest. It doesn't matter what car we drive, house we live in, trouble we face with our families or children or how whether we've lost a job or lost a ministry or lost our boys to cancer, none of those things will ever keep us from experiencing life and life abundant. Now, you're saying, properly so, Brother Paul, what's this got to do with 1 Corinthians chapter 2? Well, it's interesting to me that in the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians 2, Paul said this, I absolutely rejoice in the person of the Lord Jesus. Nothing makes me more excited than the person of the Lord Jesus. And then he says this unbelievable thing in verse 3. He says, in fact, when I was your pastor, now that's implied in the language because he was, when I was with you, he was there as their pastor, I was there in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. In other words, I was scared to death. Well, pray tell, what would Paul be scared of? Why, what would he be afraid of? Not much on earth. Not anything about anybody except one thing, that he would attempt to lead them, to speak to them, to teach them in words of wisdom instead of the wisdom that God had hidden from the beginning, which is the person of the Lord Jesus. He was fearful that he wouldn't be able to stick with who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. He was afraid that he might get so wise in man's wisdom that he'd move off the only subject that's worth talking about. The second thing I want you to notice is that Paul also said in verse 7 that this mystery, this person of the Lord Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, was a mystery. Now the word mystery is the Greek word mysterion, and it's like uh, something behind a curtain. It's like if you went to Broadway and act one was about to start. Act one, the curtain would rise. What Paul is saying is, in God's wisdom, he has now given us the curtain rising on the person of the Lord Jesus. He was the mystery that God had hidden from the very beginning. He was the one that all of the Old Testament and all the purposes of God with Israel and everything moving forward was coming to. He was the wisdom of God, what Jesus did, who he is, and how he did it on our behalf. And notice, if you will, in verse seven, it says this, it's incredible to me. God ordained before the world this mystery, the Lord Jesus, to our glory. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, whatever we have in this life, the person of the Lord Jesus is the only thing that is the glory of life. And then what makes it even better is he's the glory of our death. You remember when Jesus said in, in the epistle of John, Father, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world came into existence. Restore with me the glory I had with you. That's the glory spoken of here and it's reserved for us. 
because of who he is and what he's done on our behalf. Mary and I were talking this morning. I was just mentioning this, and we were talking about the fact some people get the idea that Christianity has to be so, uh, you know, some, well, we have this old saying, they're so otherworldly-minded, they're, they're no earthly good. And there is a measure of truth to that. Don't be so otherworldly-minded that you're no earthly good. But for crying out loud, ladies and gentlemen, let's not get so earthly-minded that we forget the glory of the coming world. Amen. In other words, that's what Jesus has reserved for us. And then finally, Jesus, uh, uh, Paul, the apostle, uh, closes this little passage we're dealing with with a word. If the princes of this world had known what I'm telling you about the Lord Jesus, he's the reason we're united. He's our redemption. He's our fellowship. He's our everything. He's the very source of life. If the princes of this world had known that, now the word princes is plural. It can mean the, the leaders of the nations around. It could have even meant the leaders of the nation of Israel. But it can also mean the leaders of the supernatural realm that has fallen under the realm of Satan, who is the prince of this world. I'm not going to say which one it really means. You can just let it go whichever one you think in your study. But I personally believe it's a subtle, if not direct, subtle reference to the person of the devil himself. If the devil had known what was actually going to happen, he would have never crucified. He would have never seen, the, in other words, he would have never worked toward the death of Jesus. He would have done everything in his power to keep him from dying. He did everything in his power to bring him to the cross. He couldn't do it. Jesus had to say, yes, no man killed him. He laid down his life willingly. But my point is simply this. Paul is saying if the princes of this world had known what was going to happen because of the Lord Jesus, they would have never let the cross become a reality. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking to us with a new focus on uh, who we are, that was the introduction. A new focus on who we are together, that's unity. This one is on a new focus on what we believe. We believe it's all wrapped up in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Am I, am I, am I right here? Amen. Do you know I haven't mentioned Baptist? I haven't mentioned Church of God. I haven't mentioned Calvary Baptist. I haven't mentioned Crossing. Those are all wonderful tools, but that's not what unites us. What unites us is the Lord Jesus himself. Amen. There are differing gifts. You have some, I have others. We don't all have the same. Do you understand that's okay? It's just not what's significant. The significance is in the person of the Lord Jesus. So what I'm leaving us with this morning is just a new focus on who it is that makes life worth living. Who it is that is to be related to everything in our life so that if everything was taken away, we'd still have the wherewithal inside us 
to have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Do you understand? We'd still have the fruit of the work of the Spirit in our life no matter what is taken in terms of circumstances. That's what Christianity is all about. Now, I don't know whether you enjoyed chewing on those tidbits or not, but that last statement from 1 Corinthians 2, particularly verses 7 and 8, is worth the entire time. And it's where it all was headed from the beginning. Amen? Amen. Steve will be here next week. God bless you. Hug five necks before you go. Shake five hands or whatever else you want to do. You can kiss on each cheek if you want to. That's biblical. We'll see you next Sunday, and Steve will be back teaching.